welcome to the found cause we have found our cause and serve the lord jesus christ i'm michael the man behind the machine and in my virtual front today is sebastian the bookkeeper we are virtual because my dear wife is sick with a bad cold and so we spared sebastian being in this physical room and now i got all this space if you see me down here wow so much space and sebastian has spared his guest seat by the way is disgusting it's my old office chair and it is like <laughs> falling apart there's 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 leather fake leather flying off it all the time so um somebody doesn't have to use it today it's great uh sebastian how are you before we get into things i guess i'm okay i, I guess i don't i get to not carry out pieces of your chair out with me after recording it's good i honestly do sweep them up every time uh today's episode is a reaction video uh, it's funny every other week we do a reaction video so it's not some specific reaction video however our co-host though he's not here today theodore he is always sending his videos on our private messaging app and um half the time i don't listen to them just like once that sebastian shows me however um when it's got something really triggering to me in the title i gotta do it and so he sent us this week uh a clip that, that, that this video genesis 5 900 year old man question mark and it's by none other than inspiring philosophy a youtuber who has a pretty decent following um he's a supposed christian and i really 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 don't like his content um, and i say that that he may be a fellow brother so this is not a call of that he's not a christian it's not an attack on his christianity there'd be other videos to maybe attack him on that um it's a very strong arminian sorry he's a very opinionated arminian and then of course he's got um, some really bad takes like this my general precursor to this video you're about to watch is this i have tolerance for brothers being inside the family of christ that they're fellow brothers and sisters in christ they've been saved by the lord jesus and they believe in god who are taking faithless takes in the bible there's plenty of people who read particular books of the bible just flat out wrong and still are able to be considered brothers and sisters in christ so when i harshly critique this video along with sebastian i don't want you thinking that um, necessarily because somebody believes this kind of theory that you're about to hear from inspiring philosophy means that they're not a christian however i do believe and strongly believe it is a faithless take on reading genesis on reading the bible and i would hope that you would never take this form of what we call exegesis where you understand scripture the way you read the text uh, for any of the other books of the bible so we shouldn't take it for genesis either um I want to leave some of my remarks for the rest of the video, so we're going to start it, um, but we'll let it play and run because it's really long for reaction video hours, and we usually take reaction videos and make them like three hours long, so we're going to try to make this as short as possible. Here is Inspiring Philosophy's take on Genesis. The genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 have drawn much debate and speculation. Many feel the numbers are meant to be taken literally, and from them, we were able to calculate biblical events prior to this. This would make sense if the genealogies were written with our culture in mind. But what does the biblical and cultural context suggest? I'm going to stop it brief. So he lays out the thing. The problem here is that uh, if you take the ages literally, as I do, as Sebastian does, i.e. when it says that Adam lived 900 plus years, that he did live 900 plus years. And uh, if you trace that back, the earth is only 6,000 plus years old. And, of course, everybody winks out these days because there's theories the Earth is much older than that, 4.2 billion, or the, the current number is, I think, 4.5 billion, um, the age of the Earth. And so what is a aspiring scientist, real cool dude to do with those conflicting numbers? Well, it's to try to smash the Bible into modern science. Um, now, I'm all for reading the Bible truthfully and taking what's symbolic as symbolic and taking what's literal as literal. And so we want to make sure that we aren't missing symbolism or misreading symbolism. 
Um, but I'd like everyone to note right now that Genesis is not a book that is uh, poetry. It's not. Um, there are exclamations. There's dictation in, in there's dialogue in Genesis. There's all sorts of mini literature within it, of course, like any other book. But it is ultimately a history book about the Genesis, the start of the world. And so that's what it is. And a lot of people will take a chapter one and two because they have the creation of the world and it's quick and it's in seven days and here's people living a long time. They try to take the first portion of Genesis and say somehow it's symbolic because these names and ages can't be right. Um, so that's that's the background of why Inspiring Philosophy would not want to say that people live 900 years old because that's crazy and people ridicule that and it would also make the age of the earth really short. So he's saying that only in the Western, the American culture would we read the age 900, whatever that, that Adam died as that many years and that the, the old Jews and other readers of Genesis, they would have known. They would have been like, ah, yeah, man, I see the, the age 938 all the time. And that to me obviously means a full life, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm doing that thing where I react and extend the length of video. The ages in Genesis 5 have become a stumbling block for many, mainly because it seems astronomically impossible that anyone could live past the age of 900, astronomically the age impossible. of 200, especially because similar texts from that time period record the average age was around 70 to 80. Some young earth creationists have simply bit the bullet on this so and take the ages to be literal. What's odd here is he says similar texts from around that time say their their ages were 70 to 80. What is he talking about? What similar texts are dated back to that time? The only way you get dates back into the early Genesis, Genesis 5 time, i.e. 6,000 years ago, um, is by taking like carbon dating of like the Epic of Gilgamesh or other like insane numbers from like uh, Sargon of Akkad and some of the origin myths of the Sumerian cities that say they'd been there for like 16,000 years prior to that. And I have no idea why you take the word of God less seriously than some Sumerian founding city text that says that their city has been there for 16,000 years because um, one of them has a gigantic... Uh, push for lying about how their longevity of their city and the other one is oh i don't know the word of god so um, <laughs> I, I don't take those dates seriously from sumerian city dates and frankly there's not a lot of them they don't name out people typically and so if we're talking about actual sources of like this particular king lived this long um they're like contemporary corroborated sources they're all post the flood they're all post alluvian they're all they're all like in the time where people would be living normal ages post the flood um so i think that's just a wrong take and let's not forget the idolatry, please, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Oh, yes. Well, of course. Literal, positing all sorts of theories to suggest how people could have lived past the age of 900. And uh, just briefly, because he's not going to go over it in this video, the theories are that we are basically super inbred versions of humans, and that the original humans could live for a thousand years with uh, longer telomeres and not to get into the crazy genetics, but essentially we all get cancer and age really quickly and die, just like products of incest do all the time. Like when you have really closely related incestuous babies, um, they die super early, like at age 30, 35, 40, because of cancer, because of a whole multitude of uh, fast aging. I mean, th these are known reported signs of incest and, and bad genes. And the theory is that when Noah was, when the whole population was broken down to just Noah and his three sons and their three wives, that the gene pool had a huge bottleneck that essentially made us all the products of terrible incest. And so we had a logarithmic decay curve, which you see right here on the video screen. And uh, we all became living one-tenth the length that we used to be, which Makes sense. And we see even in genes today, as we get to know genes more, that we could live longer if our um, telomeres didn't break down and we didn't just age faster than we should. 
you can see the von Habsburg family at this right. in for inbreeding and dying unexpectedly and having deformities. And also, I did not know, but my, from, might be relevant to this, that in Arabia and Pakistan, there is a huge inbreeding problem and people have their skin rot, they fall off. So apparently, even to this very day, you can observe that it's has detrimental effects. In any case, so perfectly scientific theory on how people could have been living longer than we do today and why they don't live this long today. Not to mention the fact that the Bible doesn't ignore the fact that people stopped living this long. It says they're going to live 120 years and then they do. So it's not like it ignores the fact that these ages were really long compared to what they are today. All of which seem improbable when you look at the science. The only one I found that could be remotely possible is that Adam was able to eat from the tree of life before he and Eve were cut off from it. And the tree made them and their immediate descendants live much longer lives that eventually faded down to normal ages through several generations. It's almost like he didn't read the Bible because he gets this, this tree of life thing, which is true, right? But the tree of life is the thing that keeps them alive forever. And so they're kicked out of the garden, meaning they will no longer live forever. That's why, it, in fact, God says, we don't really understand the tree of life, but he says, we're kicking them out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever, right, in, in sin. And so it's not the, the fruit of life. I think we can definitively say it's not the fruit of life because they're kicked out so that they die because they can no longer eat of the fruit of life, the tree of life. And then secondly, they don't start decaying. You can see the ages right here. You can see Kenan, 910 years, is the father of Mahalil, who lived 895 years, which is less than his father. But then Jared lives 962 years, way more than Mahalil. And then Enoch lives super short because he's taken early. And Methuselah lives the longest ever, 969 years. So these ages aren't slowly decaying. It only decays after the flood, just like the gene theory would stipulate. But perhaps we are being too hasty in assuming these need to be understood as literal. Numbers, even in our own culture, are not always meant to be taken literally. So true. And evidence from the ancient Near East seems to suggest a symbolic usage of numbers was used even more. We we all agree that numbers can For be example, symbolic. During the construction of his palace, Sargon II said, I built a circumference of the city wall, 16,283 cubits, the number of my name. Your in Freiburg notes, the numbers 60, 600, and 3,600 are used symbolically in Babylonian mathematics and astronomy. The 12 At the city route. of Emmer, it records, 120 years are the years of mankind. Verily, it is their bane. Which is an interesting parallel to biblical passages. At Emmer, it most likely is an ideal number for mankind, since another text from that city says the average age was 70 to 80. Karen Rain to Mittenitjit says, But, okay, average age is different than the long age just like the average age today the average death today is like 72 and yet we all know people who live to 90 most of our grandparents at least somewhere have lived to 90 and so 120 is normal age yes god limits them to 120 but people died earlier than that and and i don't deny that numbers can be symbolic just like they can be symbolic today but take a look at the numbers and they're all they're all different they're all different numbers so it'd be a lot of random symbolism and different symbolism. The Mesopotamians assigned numerical value to each sign. Thus, every name had a corresponding numerical value. Likewise, even in our own culture, we can use numbers symbolically without literal numerical meaning. What if I told you my wife is a 10? Is anyone going to accuse me of marrying a child? What if I said I'll be there in five minutes? 
Are you going to expect me to be there in exactly 300 seconds? We all agree. Or do you recognize the use of five to be a symbolic representation to mean I'll be arriving shortly? I'd like to point out that his I also attack have a personal and his family weird example. numbers numerology My is lucky number, which uh, a way of getting around the text. And when you do this to text, you are not reading the text plainly. Notice he won't read out the numbers plainly. He's not reading out the text plainly because when you read it plainly, it just sounds like a normal little genealogy. No, the numbers are different and random. They're not like 777 is not repeated a bunch and there's not the, the repeated numbers that you'd be like, oh, here's the plain symbolism. They're not round numbers in any any counting system. Um, some of them happen to be round, as you would see in any random generation of numbers, but they don't seem to have any actual symbology. So you might pick out a couple and say, oh, look, this one clear symbolism on this random person. Um, but if you do this with any other portion of the Bible's texts, you make a mockery of the text. And we see this because liberal theologians do the same thing with the accounts of Jesus. And they come up with all sorts of symbolisms that, oh, wine, he turned water into wine. This is symbolic of... Uh, making something that is plain into something beautiful and rich and so i.e he didn't actually do the wine thing i mean that's crazy that's impossible you can't actually change water into wine but like it's symbolic of how following jesus is more rich than than the lives without him and so i guess you can get that symbolism out of it great and sometimes the symbolism is true and, and good like um the crown of thorns on Jesus's head is clearly symbolic of him reversing the curse but he actually got a crown of thorns on his head so just because this this thing has symbolism to it doesn't mean it didn't actually happen uh, yes let's try not to resurrect origin again right. we've had enough of that guy well it's embarrassing because i'm sure inspiring our hope maybe i'm sure but i hope that inspiring philosophy of fellow christian does not read texts like the gospels in this purely symbolic way because there are pure symbolism like when, when prophets have visions or whatever else a lot of those things are pure symbols um like the lamb with multiple eyes i don't think that god has literal multiple eyes is literally a lamb in heaven i think it's a symbol of of his character in heaven that's seen in revelation um, and it's plain in that way because often the angels in revelation or in visions interpret the things they say these signs mean then they interpret them but they say the meaning is the meaning is sealed until the end like in daniel or whatever else and you can even see the near east did the same thing sargon of akkad uh, sargon the second says the same thing he built the city and he goes i built it sixteen thousand cubits the number of my name meaning this is a symbol it's the number of my name he announces that it's symbols not uh, not obscuring it 318 now if i told you his number was 318 it would be absurd to think that was his age when he died it was simply a symbolic number for him. Scholars have noted for years, biblical authors readily use and play with numbers for symbolic means. The most obvious is in the genealogy that's found in the Gospel of Matthew, where he specifically leaves out and duplicates generations in order to get three perfect sets of 14, totaling 42 generations from Abraham to Christ. No one can be true to the text and assume Matthew is being literal. You actually can be true to the text. Uh, there's there's genealogies that, that are supposedly messed up in the Hebrew. We don't have the original, original Hebrew. So there's arguments to be made that Matthew is using a more reliable version of the genealogy than we currently find in the Bible. Um, it's it's pretty minute details. Uh, you just saw move one name because one of the sets of 14 is different. And then they say there's a 300-year gap between Salmon and Boaz. Bite me because we don't actually know that. That's a modern interpretation of when um, the Exodus happened. So... That's dumb. That's that's building on shaky. It is clear when you read the genealogies and chronicles. This is not recognized by scholars as a blunder on Matthew's part, but an attempt to use numbers to express a symbolic message that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is not the only example. The book of Revelation uses multiple examples of symbolic numbers, such as 666 as the number mm -hmm. of the beast, 144,000 at Zion, and the number seven shows up multiple times to symbolize God's perfection. Uh, yes, but notice something critical. 
he says, whoever has wisdom, let them figure out what this number means. Exactly. So read the book of Daniel also and compare the what the weeks, how how Daniel writes out this is the weeks, the period of time. Compare that versus the account of Genesis where it just says, and he lived for 969 years. Right. Big difference. And if you think the book of um, Genesis is poetry, read songs of song of songs and tell me if they read the exact same way so they're, right they're different there's there's some difference and that's why you can't just do whatever you want to the text just because the text can have symbolism doesn't mean it is having symbolism you can prove it in the text also seven is an important symbolic number that shows up multiple times in genesis to indicate god's perfect rulership or completion but it also actually happened so like were there actual seven days of creation? I absolutely believe so. So it actually happened. And also it's symbolic and shows up elsewhere, right? We make the week seven days. It's, it's a memoriam of when God made uh, the heavens and the earth. So we, we use the symbols, but they actually happened. Again, just like Jesus actually got a crown of thorns, but it's also a symbol. Or we get baptized. Enough, there was a strong a symbol, but we actually also that the did. ages of several of Israel's patriarchs were actually ideal numbers and not their literal ages. Kenneth Kitchen notes the odd age of Joseph and Joshua, who both have strong affinity with Egypt. Both men are said to have lived to the age of 110, Gosh. the ideal age in Egyptian inscriptions. Joshua has an affinity with Egypt? What does that even mean? Joshua, the conqueror of the promised land, has an affinity with Egypt? I mean, he came, he was one of the ones, one of the people from Exodus, and Joseph, of course, is the one that founds the Egyptian dynasty, you could say, of, of the Jews, um, and they happen to live to the same age. Essentially, the biblical authors are saying both men lived the perfect Egyptian life. Wow. Joshua. Mirbar Elan highlights the age Egyptian. of Sarah at 127, which combines two ideal numbers in the Bible and has correlations to other ancient works as an ideal number. When you have to add the numbers, you have gone Yikes. off the crazy train. I hear a, reading yeah. this book on Revelation right now, and it does like additions and stuff. You can you could break this up into 121 and 6. You could break up to 122 and 5. You can do anything if you start splitting numbers. That's why numerology is extremely dangerous when you start doing stuff like this. Yikes. It reminds me a lot of the, what, what's it called, Kabbalah, when Jewish when Jewish mysticism tried to add numbers, find secret meanings yeah. and numbers in the Bible. Oh, no. And look at the bullet points here. I didn't even read them. Asahurius, king of uh, Persia, had 127 states. How is that related to Sarah's age? Like, it come, comes thousands of years after Sarah. I am baffled. Nahum Sarna also notes the ages from Abraham to Jacob show a mathematical formula ending in Jacob's whole life and from the time he was named Israel. This is not an opinion, it is math. Coincidences like this do not occur. <laughs> well, if you're forcing the numbers to appear. <laughs> Woo! You know, the only factors of 180 are five, six, and six. I mean, we all know that. There's no other way to get to 180 except for multiplying five, six, and six. And it just so happens they add to 17. You can literally do this with, with anything. And you'll see Nostradamus notorious for doing this kind of thing with numbers and, and tons of false prophets. So um, don't do this because false prophets use it because it's so easy to manipulate. Don't fall for this kind of um, interpretation. Don't some prosperity or some, you know, heretical preachers, they find numbers of verses and try to find secret meanings yes. even in the New Testament doing this? Yeah, now that's extra obviously wrong because the numbers of the verses were created in the Middle Ages, so that's extra wrong. These are actual numbers found in the Bible. But once again, these numerical techniques to get weird stuff like this, like what does it even mean, one, and then two, it's you can do this with any numbers. Abraham is given 75 years in his father's house and 75 years with his son, 
He was 100 when his son was born and lived in Canaan 100 years. Jacob lived 17 years with Joseph and then another 17 years with him in Egypt. On top of this, Craig Olson notes there are implicit statements in the stories about the patriarchs that indicate the ages cannot be literal. For example, Genesis 25 says Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full this of years, hilarious. and was gathered to his people. The text also records elsewhere, Abraham lived to be 175. But this wouldn't make sense with his ancestry. Abraham would have died young by the standard of those who came before him. Okay, this is what's insane. Okay, this, this is like an obvious oversight, I hope, by inspiring philosophy. Because what he's saying here, and you can see it on the screen, is that Abraham died at 175, which would have been young compared to his father and his father's father and whatever else. But you can actually see on the screen that Nahor, his grandfather, died earlier than 175. Um, Terah lived a long time. Saru, Gru, Pele, Geber, all those like extra ancestors were on the, the degeneration train. Um, so they lived longer. But note that by the time you get to Abraham, it has been um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten um, descendants past Shem. And so if you think about the law of exponential returns, you'll know that Shem was one of three brothers with three wives. And then Arpachshad was the son, one of one of the sons, many sons of these three brothers. And then Salah was one of the sons of those sons of the original three. And then Eber was a son of the sons of the sons of the sons. So you can imagine there was a lot more Ebers than there was Salah's, and there are a lot more Salah's generation than of Arpachshad's and so on. So there were exponentially more people living the same age as Abraham or around him than the Pelegs of the world. Like the Peleg or Eber or Salah, people who were living really long, not only were they dying in really old about the time that Abraham was dying himself, but also they were incredibly rare people because there was way, way more people living to the 120 age just because of the law of generations. And so Abraham did live a long time compared to his contemporary people, who are the majority of the population of the earth at the time, who lived to around 120, we assume, um, and even his father Nahor, who is two generations after, uh, before Abraham, um, didn't live long compared to his father. So we can see that this genetic deterioration had already kind of hit its plateau bottom. On a positive note, besides the shenanigans that are going on, is going on here, I think it's cool that Abraham would have met so many of his relatives. Could and, have, uh, at least. I mean, those have been, like, really <laughs> famous people, hard to get a hold of because of all their descendants, <laughs> so he might not have met any of them, except for, of course, Nahor. He goes to the city of Nahor, his grandfather, so there's that. In fact, his ancestor Eber would have outlived him. Abraham's death would have been a travesty, a sign the lives of humans were deteriorating. So if the age is literal, it doesn't make sense to say Abraham died in a good old age. But they had been deteriorating for like 10 generations. So it wasn't, he, he wasn't some distinct, oh no. Like people have been dying like that for years. He, he lived a long life for his time and for his contemporaries. People I'm sure around him that were born in his time died before him because it's 175. It was an old age, as you can see by the fact that his grandfather didn't even live that long. He died quite young and was not an old man. Genesis but it's 17. dumb of course of course he was an old man and equally the the ages of like Eber and his ancestors to live 500 years um, would have been old men like him at their time so um, people would it would have been obvious that he was an old person when he died because he was physically old 
Um, just like when you when you see a dog, you call it an old dog, even though it's 15 years old, and you're and you know that's really young in human years. But you see an old dog, and you go, "Oh, that's an old dog," or he lived a long life, even though objectively to humans, 15 years isn't long. To that dog, it's super long. So same with Abraham; he objectively lived a long life because to him, that was a long life. Records that Abraham laughed at the prospect of having a child past the age of 100. But if the ages of his ancestors were literal, why would he laugh? He would have known many of his ancestors were born when their fathers passed the age of 100. This is insane because he was old, because he was an old man and so was his wife. And this was not when people were having children. And when Enoch or Methuselah or Lamech looked and felt as old as he did, they weren't having kids, right? Because their 182 is like our 18. That's, it's, it's not even like my weird speculation. Look at the text. Clearly they were having babies at the first kid they had was at the age of 182. And then they lived to 777 in Lamech's case. So clearly their aging was about 10 times uh, less than ours. So in other words, just to put it plainly and simple, Abraham was the king far, far faster than his ancestors. And so was everybody around him, because again, the vast majority of humans by Abraham's time were like Abraham living that length. So to say that he would have babies after 100 is crazy because he was an old guy. So it would not be fair to compare him to, say, Methuselah or Lamech. Got it. In fact, by doing the math of Genesis 12, it would mean Terah would have fathered Abraham when he was 130. Yet Abraham thinks people over the age of 100 simply do not have children, thus implying the ages are not literal, but symbolic representations. Okay. Sarna explains, It is clear that the biblical chronologies of the patriarchal age are not intended to be accurate historical records in our sense of the term. The numbers used are an expression of the biblical interpretation of history as the unfolding of the divine plan on the human scene. You can say a lot of pretty words, but I'd like you to, to actually show from the text how this is the case. Because it's one thing to say that, oh, it's impossible for people to live long. That's crazy. Or like, oh, it would have been weird for Abraham to think that he couldn't have kids when his father had kids uh, at that same age. Um, but note the text and all the numbers it gives. It's not like everybody lives to 100 or they're all obvious symbols. You have to pick and choose who are supposedly symbolic numbers. And even then, it's pretty laughable. It would have to be extremely clear that this was the case for it to be a true Bible. Otherwise, it's just a lying Bible and it tells you people live that long. Correlating with this, if you add up the ages of all the patriarchs from Adam to Moses, you get 12,600. A derivative of this number shows up in Revelation as a symbolic number of God's unfolding plan. A derivative of this number? Show me the weird math you did to get that one. Whatever. Or a time of preparation. The ages are not coincidental. Moses brings Israel into the Promised Land which was viewed by Israel as a new Eden. So from Eden to Eden, you have a symbolic number show up to symbolize God preparing to bring his people back into a land where his presence resides. The 12,600 is symbolic because it's a derivative of something in Revelation that hasn't happened yet. So the 12,600 is a symbol and the people of Moses' time would have known it because they had read Revelation or something. It's dumb. That's dumb. I call... That, that's dumb. That's all I gotta say. The age of Moses is one of the most obvious cases of symbolism. Deuteronomy 34.7 says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. As we noted, this is an ideal number in the biblical text and at the city of Emmer. Mir bar says, Moses is... I looked up the verse he referred to in Revelation and it's... So when the woman flees to the wilderness, this is chapter 12, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. 
So Unless I'm crazy, that is not 12,600. So he's saying it's derivative because it's 10 times more? Yes. What? Okay. So you have, so, yeah, we're asking to explain why you're deriving the sum from that. Yeah. And then equally, the 120 days, I mean, I suppose it's symbolic in that God gives men 120 days, and here Moses dies at 120 days, but okay. Doesn't mean he didn't actually die at 120. Remember, he was taken up essentially early. God said, you're going to die before you enter the promised land, come up to this mountain, and he came up the mountain and died before he entered the promised land. So um, maybe God chose to take him at 120 for whatever reason. We're perfect until the very last day. And it looks as if the whole number of 120 denotes some kind of perfection. No doubt the number 12 denotes time, since there were always 12 months in a year. So 12 denotes a whole circle of time, and a complete circle denotes perfect by itself. And but it's clear that 10 denotes perfect, corporal talents, remember. because each has 10 fingers. In other words, the text directly tells us why 120 was given to Moses. His talents were perfect until the completion of his life. But they weren't. <laughs> he died early mind, because of his sin um, by striking the rock when he should have not struck it um, to get water from it. So he died er early, um, and which is why it says his eyes were indemnified, his vigors unbated, I think. It's showing that, that God took him just as he promised. He said he was going to take him before he entered the promised land. Turn back to the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11. Kenneth Matthews notes the ages in Genesis 5 vary between the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, and the Samaritan Pentateuch. Now, the reason for this, in case you're unfamiliar with Hebrew, is that they use letters for numbers, and, and letters get switched often because of the way of scribes writing down things, especially unclear letters. And so it's possible that the ages we currently have in our Bible are off marginally because of the use of letters for numbers, and that there's confusion there. Um, so yes, I will admit that you can have changes, like you see here, between the Masoretic text and other texts, and the Septuagint and others, um, with the age of people. For example, you see Adam, age of the firstborn, 230, 130. You can see that it's a, it's a letter switch. It's a number switch because of uh, scribal errors. So one of these numbers we assume is correct. We assume that God's uh, word has been preserved. Um, so we assume either the 165, the, the 100s added in the Septuagint are correct because it was closer to the original text um, when it was translated to Greek or um, that the current Masoretic text are right. But either way, um, there's room for Christians to agree or disagree. For example, some would say that the earth is actually 8,000 years old because these extra years that are added by the, the Septuagint, but they're still extremely long years, either way you count it. And so the, the problem still remains. If the ages are meant to be literal, this would create a theological problem. But if the ages are symbolic... Theological problem? There's no... Th Woof! I'm sweating. I'm sweating, Sebastian. Apparently it's a theological problem when you have uh, textual differences. I didn't know that. I thought that was a textual problem, not a theological problem. I, I... It still shows that the Earth is not millions of years old, even if you go with the Septuagint or the Mesoritic text. Well, the thing is, it's not theological yeah exactly because the theology would be like is the earth young or old um but the textual variants aren't a theological problem unless you don't believe that god um, uses uh human hands to record scripture mm -hmm. and i understand there are some small parties that believe that god would like possess the writers of scriptures they never made an error um, but we see that he evidently didn't. And so we're okay with textual variants and we use the, the many variants that we have of the scriptures to try to get at what the original source was. So um, this is really a textual criticism conversation right here and he's not addressing it at all. Like for theological messaging, then these variants pose no problem in the same way Matthew adjusting Jesus's genealogy for theological messaging doesn't pose an issue. So 
I guess he's postulating that the Septuagint changed the numbers intentionally for theological messaging. The variants are likely the result sort. of a cultural norm that the numbers are fluid and can be adjusted to give theological significance. Okay, so you see that you see the variants. You're looking at them right now. So, like, if you just had the transcript of his words, maybe you believe him. But here we are looking at the numbers. Enosh, for example, third third row, age of firstborn, ninety in the Masoretic text, uh, ninety in the SP, and now uh, the Septuagint has hundred and ninety. So it adds hundred years. And the same for a lot of these these guys. They add hundred years. Mahalalel, sixty-five, but instead in the Septuagint he's hundred and sixty-five. They both live to the exact same age. You can see in both texts, but one hundred was added to a lot of these ages when their firstborn was born. This the theological significance of that is what? And would it have been so? The Septuagint was recorded supposedly later than the Masoretic text because the Septuagint was written around like 100 uh, BC when they were translating things to Greek, and the Masoretic text is hopefully a good preservation of the original Hebrew, which was written like thousands of years earlier. Um, had the context in the Greek world changed at that time so that they would want to add 100 years to each one of the ages of when they had had their firstborn son? It it's it's laughable. There's there's no theological reason why somebody would add this. It's clearly just textual variants for textual variants sake and so um yeah it's a bad pitch rr wilson says even though the genealogies may be fluid and tendentious they are still valuable historical sources provided their nature and functions are taken into account in addition in a number of cases when we compared parallel genealogies we found them to be identical so until we have evidence to the contrary we must consider them to be accurate and potentially valuable historical sources in other words even if the numbers are not literal, that doesn't mean the author is suggesting the patriarchs didn't exist. As W.E. Alfrech said, It is inaccurate to say that these genealogies do not represent reliable facts. It is more accurate to say that the conception of history for and by which they were maintained caused them to develop in certain ways. Okay, this is... The, the reason we, we highlighted this episode is not only because I have a BMI bonnet about people misinterpreting Genesis because they're afraid of the modern scientists, which I do. I, I have that and clearly it shows. Um, but also because if you take this kind of crappy exegesis to any of the other parts of the Bible, you will make a mockery of the text. And inspiring philosophy, you do everyone a disservice by this kind of video, and yourself included. And I know you're not the only one. This isn't like, I mean, here you are quoting a lot of people. It's not your theory. It's really all these other guys' theories you're picking up on. This kind of interpretation is used. Not theoretically, it's not a slippery slope. It is used for the New Testament, which I know you probably don't agree in the Old Testament with me because you probably take what these liberal theologians think about the Old Testament and that it's maybe wrong or symbolic or some weird origin-style interpretation of it. But the New Testament, which you both agree on, real facts, Jesus really did the things, he really did the miracles that are talked about in the New Testament, They, the same liberal theologians use the exact same techniques you're using on the Old Testament, on the New, to say that, this exact quote. It's inaccurate to say that these miracles did not represent reliable facts. It's more accurate to say that the conception of history for and by which they were maintained caused them to develop in certain ways. And put the glasses up, like in, in plain speech. It's inaccurate to say that Jesus didn't actually like rise from the dead. Uh, it's more accurate to say that he, that we can say he rose from the dead <laughs> uh, because he lives in our hearts forever. Which is what liberal theologians <laughs> say. And they, they, they put up dumb statements like this to say it. They're like, it's inaccurate to say we don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Because although we don't believe he rose from the dead, we believe that he lives on in us forever and that his ideals are forever. So therefore we say truthfully and do not lie when we say that Jesus has resurrected and that we have the new life in us. and Whatever. They, they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They don't believe he's God. They don't believe in God at all. 
So you can't use this kind of interpretation in the Old Testament if you're not going to use it in the New, which you shouldn't on either. And for first-hand evidence of that, check our video, our reaction to that liberal Lutheran pastor from Canada. Yeah, Pastor she does exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly she, the same thing. Yeah, she does this kind of thing. So watch out because it's uh, more than a slippery slope. This is evil exegesis. And I understand it's limited to the genealogies in Genesis. The, the, the evil is limited. Great. And that's how we can still be brothers or whatever else. But this is an evil way to interpret the text. Don't do it. So and before we go on, please, for how, how will this apply even to us? As fun as I'm having and as much as you're raging, Michael, <laughs> how can we apply this yeah. to, our, to ourselves as, uh, when we read the Bible? If you hold to this old thing, that the genealogies are symbolic, obviously you might be thinking that the earth is millions or billions of years old. Why are you only applying this form of reading the Bible just to Genesis? And whereas what Michael were talking about was that we don't, and I hope that inspiring philosophy doesn't do this, but the New Testament, why not? Why are you using different reading standards for specifically this part of Genesis and not, for example, Moses, probably all believe Moses was a real guy. He did the things he did. Jesus, I would hope, you know, whoever's a self-proclaimed Christian out there would, would say that, yes, he did do the miracle of wine, the fish, the bread, the walking on water. But why are you not saying that's also symbolic? What I'm getting at is, why are you using two standards for the same text? Jesus claimed that uh, the events from Genesis did occur. Adam mm -hmm. and Eve were created, and of course, the flood and all of that. And he treats it as if it were real history. Me what, what I'm trying to say is, you know, why why are you using different standards for this part of the text and not the other? And I would caution, be very careful. Right. Be very, very careful. And the reason we say that there are different standards, that there, there's nothing in Genesis truly to indicate that these ages, these numbers are symbolic, except that you want them to be symbolic. And so if you take that standard to the rest of the Bible, when you see any number, it could be symbolic because you didn't need any triggering words to make you think a number was symbolic in Genesis. And therefore, when you hear that Jesus had 12 disciples, you might go, I don't need a triggering phrase to think that's symbolic. It's symbolic. The disciples didn't really exist. It's an ideal. They, they aren't real disciples. And honestly, that's that's what uh, atheists sometimes do. And they, they come up with um, crazy theories about how Jesus wasn't real. And that he's really like a parable about divine truth. Um, and then equally... When we see the proper exegesis, proper reading of the text, should require uh, triggering phrases or something real about the text and from the text to make something symbolic. For example, when we see visions, right, the prophets get visions, we know that A, they're visions because the text says, I saw a vision. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, one like the Son of Man coming at the clouds of heaven. We know that it's a vision. It's not actually happening. It's happening in his mind. And therefore, that triggering phrase that these things that he's going to see are likely symbols because they're going to represent things that happen on earth, even though they aren't actually happening on earth. They're in his vision. And then equally, we see things like straight up, this is what that vision means from interpreting people. Not always, but actually fairly often in the Bible, when it gives a symbol, does, does the explanation for the symbol get given? Because unless it's super obvious or is meant to be hidden, um, the reader is supposed to understand what the symbol means. Otherwise, it's kind of a useless symbol. Whereas these things are clearly obscure symbols, if they're symbols at all, these, these numbers, um, in so much as you'd have to add them all up and somehow relate them to Revelation, which clearly wasn't written yet, and 
<laughs> whatever. I mean, there's there's so many things being thrown out here by inspiring philosophy and these other authors that it's hard to touch them all without sounding crazy. You sound like a conspiracy conspiracy theorist swatting down every fly, but he he is the conspirator creating a bunch of flies, a bunch of gross untruths that you shouldn't read scripture this way. I'm ranting. We'll let him continue. <laughs> in other words, they were written in a culture that used symbolic numbers and mathematical formulas. We but it would be inaccurate today. to say that means the author meant for it to be understood as entirely fictional. That would be a slippery slope fallacy and assume more that is being said. Many argue the ages have to be literal because they appear random and are not ideal numbers that show up in other places in scripture. Well, this is partially true, but that is because scholars recognize they are mathematical formulas utilizing... Scholars, the, the, the wisest among us, look at the crazy math that is being shown by the scholars here to show that these truly random numbers are somehow symbolic. They've got multiplication, they've got addition, they've got months, they've got years, they've got uh, all sorts of stuff. None of it is consistent. It's, it's truly random. Why? The question would be, why is this symbolism being used? And, and that's where the shoulders shrug. Because this is insanity. When you look at all these math formulas, the real scholars using these math forms, they know how to use their, their calculator. It's crazy. This, this is not a consistent way to, to read the text. And it is truly what, what old theologians, bad theologians like Origen and modern theologians that don't take the text seriously do to the rest of the Bible, don't do it to Genesis. In a sexagesimal counting system, or base 60. Ancient Sumerians and Babylonians didn't count like us. We use a decimal system, a base 10 system, because we have 10 fingers. So a new set starts at 10, 20, 30, and so on. This is not how ancient Sumerians counted, but with a base 60 system. They also use base 12, which he's not going to talk about here because you can do all sorts of stuff with base 12 too, with biblical numbers. In fact, base 12, 120 would have been, would have been the 10 of the base 12 system. So it's, yes, also base 60. They've used a lot of different numbers in the past. They would count the 12 segments of the four fingers mm -hmm. and then multiply that by five fingers which gets you to 60. The ancient base 60 system is where we get 360 degrees in a circle or time segments of 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour. The Mesopotamians had a 360 day year calendar with a 13th month added every six year to make up for the missing days. Considering the biblical story begins in the area of Sumer before Abraham moves to Canaan, this would correlate nicely. Now, notice 21 of the 30 ages listed are divisible by five 21 of the 38, so it's not consistent way of doing the math. I mean, I'm going to keep saying the same thing over and over again, but it's freakish ways to do the math. Not every age is even divisible by five, and somehow five is some significant number. Why? And another eight become divisible by five by subtracting seven. But it's still not consistent because there's still however many left that you can't do this system to. And the last does as well by adding multiples of seven. Ah, uh, yes. This is an odd coincidence. It's not a coincidence, it's insane number theory. Ken Sparks notes the odds of all 30 ages, coincidentally ending in either a 0, 2, 5, 7, or 9, is point zero. Sorry, I'm just pausing because the coincidence of all the ages ending in 0, 2, 5, or 9, literally half of the digits that we have available to us, is point zero 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 six percent possible meaning that if they ignored 50% of the digits, that's a 0.000006% possibility. Okay. It, it, 
if you were rolling a dice, I suppose. So zero, 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 six percent possible. Lloyd Bailey compared this with a list of kings that reigned in Israel and Judah from the Book of Kings, all of which and in every available number of a decimal system. Only five are divisible by five, in no pattern forms. The sequence is truly random. The genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 do not seem to be. So it compares with uh, smaller numbers, because right, all these have, uh, most of these have three digits, so they're easier to divide by whole numbers, whereas the single digit ages, or double digit ages of the kings of Israel are harder to divide by numbers. Um, okay. I mean, okay, right? Like if we, we chopped off, um, if we divided all these numbers that you see before you, the names of the old patriarchs, by 10, um, you'd also see random numbers because they can't be divided by five. It's just that they have been, they're large, so they're easier to divide by numbers because they're bigger. That's when it. you look at Genesis 5 and 11 in light of this, a pattern emerges. All of these ages correlate with a base 16 numerical system and were probably used to express symbolic importance, perhaps representing their character, accomplishments, or relationship with God. Lloyd Bailey says, such analysis and comparison does not suggest that the biblical figures are not true. Rather, it raises the possibility that they depict a mode of truth that differs from modern concern with chronological accuracy. Okay. If it says that Adam lived to 938 and he didn't live to 938, but 938 is symbolic of him being like the first man or some insanity. Um, it's not, he didn't, it's not true. He didn't actually live to 938. It's not a different kind of truth. It, it actually never tells us his age because it tells us some fake meaning of his age. Usually when anybody, put the Bible away, when anybody gives a symbol, um, they will give the explanation for the symbol or they'll give a, a symbol alongside the, like the real truth. For example, the twin towers were destroyed and we built one big tower in its place. Now we're planning to build like a whole segment, but we put, we put a big hole where the second tower was. Um, and so we've got, uh, the truth is that there's only one tower, but the symbol is that we're, we've replaced two towers with one big tower and then one hole where the previous tower was. I know that's a stretch, but similarly in the Bible, um, there will be reigns of Kings that are, uh, started early while their father is still alive so that they can be like whole numbers, like 40 years or whatever else reigning, um, which is the symbol. But then it also gives you the actual number that they reigned, which it doesn't include like the, the years that their father was still alive. And it's some random number because it's the actual truthful years that they lived. And so there's usually a symbol next to the truth. If you're going to do it that way, like if they're, if, for example, in the age, like there's an obvious truth to how long Adam lived, however long that was. And so if you're going to give some symbol of how long he lived, you might give both. You, we'd think you'd give both. Um, never does it do that with any of these ages. So again, the, the trigger that would make you think these are symbolic ages is not there. In other words, the biblical authors were not interested in exact chronology, like we put a strong emphasis on today. This is a misreading of scripture with modern lenses. Rather, the biblical authors were using symbolic numbers to represent the unfolding of God's plan from Adam to Abraham down to Moses. The numbers of each patriarch have some symbolic importance. Although unknown to Moses, be, like, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, which would be what? Yeah, well, he doesn't even know. He's like, likely it means something. Like it meant something to the original authors. The, the genealogy was handed down, we, we assume, generation to generation in the Hebrew nation. And so Moses eventually recorded the genealogies that were known to the Hebrew people. And so it would have had to be some vast and consistent conspiracy amongst every single generation of people who are passing down ages 
to know that they were symbolic ages. And the fact that it was never translated to Moses or his people is, again, pretty dubious. Though we do not know entirely what each individual age is meant to represent. Which makes them kind of useless symbols, isn't it? If we don't understand what they mean, like why are, why are they recorded this way? Why would God unfold things this way? Additional clues still speak to this. For example, it is not by accident Enoch who walked with God was the seventh from Adam. There is that sacred number seven again. His age was exactly 365 years, correlating to the 365 days of a solar year. Ah, uh, yes, which we just talked about. They didn't use 365 days of a solar year. And it's and we also know that 365 days isn't actually the official amount of days that happen in a solar year. It's 365 point something, um, point, point two five. And then we, we throw in an extra um, day every fourth year. So 365 is not a proper number, and it wasn't even at use at the time. So this is, again, some you're just looking, you're grasping for straws at the numbers here. Both numbers probably correlate to information specifically about Enoch, perhaps representing completion in some way. Because Enoch, what? Because he got taken up early? That's why he's symbolizing completion? Why? <laughs> the Lamech of Seth's line is 777, contrasting him with Lamech, the descendant of Cain, who boasted a 77-fold vengeance. That doesn't actually contrast him. That seems to correlate him, like they're, they're somehow related. Lamech is also the son of Methuselah, whose gematria is exactly 777. What? I don't know what it, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show my ignorance here. I have no idea what a gematria is, but uh, all right. This might represent Lamech's moral character for blessing his son Noah the Flood Hero. Interestingly enough, the use of the base 60 system is seen in Genesis 1 to 11. But after that, with Abraham and his descendants, specific ideal numbers seem to be used. This seems to be a reoccurring cultural theme until the times when Chronicles and Kings were written, where exact literal number usage is applied more. I don't like the ages in Genesis 12 to the book of Samuel. I don't like the ages in Genesis 1 to 11 because they're not today's ages. I like the ages in Kings and Chronicles. Those are probably literal. I don't like the ages in Genesis 12 through Samuel. Those are probably ideal. I really don't like the ages in 1 through 11 because they're huge. We got to divide them by 60. This would suggest different authors for each section and could possibly represent different time periods. Genesis 1 to 11 may be a much older tradition than the later history of Abraham's descendants, and that having been written long before later biblical texts that use literal numbers more often within a decimal system. However, the use of base 60 in ideal numbers did not die out during later time periods. But the use of a base 60 system in Genesis 1-11 seems to imply different authors for the first sections of Genesis, and could also be a much older tradition than the rest of Genesis, and show more affinity to the ancient Sumer, whereas the time of Abraham and his descendants show more affinity to Egypt and the cities in Canaan. Building on this, the genealogy... Notice, Joseph and Joshua... Joshua's not related to Egypt, I don't think. Yeah, he came out of Egypt, but so did Moses. Moses didn't live to 110. It is an ideal age in the Egyptian inscriptions, specifically because Amenhotep III died at 110. Some, some random king of Egypt died at 110, and therefore it's an ideal age of Egyptians, even though he's only one pharaoh of a whole slew of pharaohs. And um, again, it's just, it's groping at supposed coincidences that aren't coincidences, but they really are. 110, I think, is just a straight coincidence between these two. Apologies of Genesis 5 and 11 find interesting parallels in ancient Sumerian king lists. The Sumerians listed their reigns of ancient kings 
also by using a base 60 counting system, with the main difference being their reigns are calculable with a 60 squared unit. Yeah, and notice their reigns are freaking insane, right? 21,600 years is 60 squared times 6, or 60 squared times 12, or times 13, which, although they're kind of convoluted, I suppose is a, it's a better formula than like splitting something into a factors of three, which is what you did for the other biblical ages, which you can you can do anything with numbers if you split into three factors and do all sorts of stuff. At least this is a little simpler. I mean, I'm not going to defend the Sumerians. I don't know what they're doing here with their like gigantic 72,000 years of Kiduno. Beyond that, there are correlations and important differences between both lists. To start, Genesis 7 says Noah was 600 when the flood began whereas the Sumerian equivalent, Zusudra, was 36,000 years, 600 multiplied by 60. The seventh from Adam is Enoch, who parallels the sevens in the Sumerian king list, who was said to be summoned to heaven, similar to God taking Enoch. Later, a cult city developed around this specific person at Sippor, which was a well-known place of solar worship. There might be a correlation in that Enoch was said to be 365 when God took him, the total number of days in a solar year. Here's the zeitgeist, Sebastian. I thankfully have not. It's one of those conspiracy theory movies where it's trying to show that Jesus didn't really exist and that he's got all these things um, in his life and ministry that uh, correspond with the signs in the heavens and whatever else. And therefore, the assumption is that uh, he never really existed and that the whole story was supposed to be an allegory for like the way the stars worked or a whole bunch of stuff because it's not consistent. And the, the, it's really just supposed to make you question the truth of whether Jesus existed and not really come to believe in a different consistent truth because it doesn't have one. And equally for this kind of presentation, again, I understand inspiring philosophy, maybe well-intentioned, trying to keep young Christians from getting their faith sh shaken when they go to science class and they hear the earth is 4.5 billion years old and doesn't match up with Genesis. But this kind of analysis is zeitgeisty. It's not real. It just made, made makes you question the truth, but it does not help you come to any consistent method of reading the patriarchy it certainly doesn't give you an understanding of truth he says maybe the age of enoch is 365 days and it has to do with the solar god that was worshipped in some random city in sumer yikes and they didn't even use 365 days in a year it's embarrassing it's freakish sorry but i'm not sorry the parallels are interesting and both might share common sources or oral traditions but richard hess cautions against suggesting there is direct copying going on for numerous reasons. First, Hess notes the genealogies in the ancient Near East are connected with succession of office holders. This is not the case with the genealogies in Genesis 4, 5, 10, or 11. The aim of the Genesis genealogies doesn't seem to be land holdings or political succession. Next, the aim of the other genealogies is to give a descended figure a certain royal or official status. This is absent in Genesis 4 and 5, and instead, each genealogy ends with acts i'd like you to note and i can pull up here but you can kind of see it in the uh in the text that's now fading out of course um these ages they had they lived like for example here line 15 when mahalala lived 65 years he fathered jared mahalala lived after he fathered jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters thus all the days of mahalala were 900 895 years and he died when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Excuse me. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Any triggering phrases? They're all different numbers. We got 65, 830, 900, 895, 162, 800, 962. There's no trigger phrases to make me think this is symbolic, and there's certainly a lot of numbers being thrown out, which makes me think that these, again, aren't symbolic. 
And if I have to do some crazy factorial math to figure out how they're symbolic, um, I don't think anybody understood how they're symbolic because they weren't. I, you could do the years of the, the world wars. Um, for example, World War II lasted from 1939 to 1945. That's exactly six years. The number of man. So is it really that the World War II lasted six years? Or is it symbolic of mankind being at war with itself? Hmm. And instead, each genealogy Let me give you ends some with triggering ads. words. Go ahead. Michael, let me give you some. So, Revelation 15. The skulls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Compare. Compare. And contrast. Right. Yeah. Big preface on this is a symbolic number, calculated if you can, right? Not, not every number is so prefaced, but. That's the kind of thing we're looking for, something at least to, to show you that it would be symbolic. They bring about condemnation, not a claim to a title or status. Third, the king lists do not include ages at which the next king was begotten, like in Genesis 5 and 11, where there is an emphasis on tracing down bloodlines. Fourth, the king lists in Genesis seem to be working in opposite directions. Richard Hess says, in the former, the use of the kinship term son in describing the relation between generations gives the genealogies an impression of direction that moves from the latest generation to the earliest. In the biblical genealogies of Genesis 4, 5, and 11, no such term as son is ever used in the formulas to describe the kinship relations between each generation. It only appears in Genesis 5 and 11 to describe the birth of additional sons and daughters, but the focus in relations between generations is one of the father begetting the son. Okay, I don't know if you're following him here, but he's saying that son, like son of Ben in, in Hebrew, Ben, you know, Jesus, Ben, Joseph, um, son of is a typical way that genealogies are written in Hebrew because it's really fast. You say Jesus, Ben, Joseph, Joseph, Ben, Jacob, Jacob, Ben, um, whatever, you know, keep, keep going on the genealogy. It's, it's really fast. Son of, son of, son of, son of. Um, but that Genesis doesn't do the, the Ben thing, doesn't say just son. It says um, Abraham begot Isaac, right, at this age. And then it says they have other sons and daughters. It doesn't use the word son when it says begot the next name because it's assumed it's a son is what I would say. But he's saying there's significance to the fact that it doesn't call the, the firstborn uh, son um, because maybe... Maybe they're not actually the son of that person. So maybe Abraham didn't really beget Isaac in a literal sense. Maybe he, like, Isaac was the next in a line of righteous men. Uh, but, of course, we know the story. I'm using that one specifically because we know the story about Abraham in which he begets Isaac physically with his wife. And that's the whole promise of God is that he's going to physically beget Isaac. And so this begetting was totally normal, totally regular son. And so the beginning of Abraham to Isaac was entirely normal. Um, it is odd, to say the least, to say that there's significance to the fact that it uses the beginning method of, of speaking versus then, um, which is used in the Kings, because again, totally different offers and totally different time periods, just a different way of describing genealogies. This means there is a genealogical movement from the earliest ancestor to the latest, the opposite of that of the other genealogies in the ancient Near East. Hess also notes each cultural's genealogies function differently. 
The emphasis in Genesis is on beginning and then dying, which shows a lack of ancestral cult development, and focuses more on moving the timeline forward rather than looking back for ideal figures and ideal times. In fact, the emphasis in Genesis is more about the failures of humanity, not ideal models to look back to. The past is to be learned from, not idealized. Hess summarizes, the differences in the form and function of these two collections of texts suggest that attempts to make comparisons proceed with caution, and that the context of the texts themselves within their particular literary and cultural world be the controlling factor in interpretation. I, are you you're familiar with Jordan Peterson, right, Sebastian? Yes. Big culture commentator. He has a series on the Bible, a really, really long series in the Bible. There's a lot of interpretations of the Bible, specifically of Genesis, because he starts there and he like can explode it to like hundreds of hours of just on Genesis, and so he never really gets farther than that. Um, the way he interprets the Bible, he's not a Christian. Maybe one day he will be, but he's not a Christian. He does not believe these things actually happen, nor does he believe that God is real. He takes the same interpretation that liberal people do, and that is that God is like a symbol of what is good and true and righteous. He's not a real God. He's just like an idea out there. And therefore, we should follow the Bible because it's like the culmination of human wisdom. And so he takes apart every single Bible story and comes up with some thing it's trying to communicate that, of course— Nobody naturally reading the text, especially some Near Eastern dude or some kids that are hearing these stories as they're passed on by fathers, would understand. Um, but somehow the, the wise and intelligent are somehow supposed to get um, the fact that, for example, 365 days of Enoch's living symbolizes completion. And therefore, we're looking back on Enoch to know that he was complete when he died. Or, in this case, Richard Hess is saying that um, the descendants of, uh, of Genesis— are different because they're saying the father begot the son instead of the son whose father was this you know they reverse the order of how the genealogies are laid out versus like eastern genealogies and that has something to do with showing that we shouldn't look to the past to as, as an ideal but we should instead learn from it it totally sounds like a Jordan Peterson thing to me and Jordan Peterson has plenty of wise things to say but he has not interpreted the bible correctly Inspiring philosophy, you should not take cues from non-Christians or men who clearly have um, lost their way. The King List consistently suggests a backward movement in time, while the biblical genealogies move forward in time. This would suggest a different purpose for the two forms of literature. This also seems to be the case with the Table of Nations, which remains distinct in terms of its breadth of scope. The similarities between the different genealogies are probably a result of cultural similarities and customs, not necessarily direct copying. Both cultures seem to be using a base 60 system, and the number 7 for specific theological or cultural purposes. Richard Averbeck, surveying the research, notes most of what we can say is there was significant but indirect influence between Sumerian literature and the Hebrew Bible. What's odd to me too is that Sumer is the culture, and again as Bible believers this is what we would have to believe, comes after the flood. And so the Sumerians are descendants of the same descendants that the Hebrews are, i.e. like they all descend from Noah and they all settle the earth. So of course they have cultural similarities because they're both coming from the same father, Noah, um, at some point. I would say that the similarities end pretty much there. And that's why Sumerian literature is different than Hebrew literature because it, they were changing fast, pretty fast, considering the genealogies um, aren't very far apart, that Sumerians would have been only like 10 generations separated from Noah, and Noah would have been living for a good portion of some of the founding Sumerian city-states' lives. Uh, so it's not odd that they 
copy genealogies and then slightly change them. It's not odd that they change them in pretty significant ways. And it's not odd that they use their, the, the changes they make to the Bible genealogies are for pretty obvious political reasons, like expanding the number of days that their kings have lived or their cities have been founded by tenfold. Um, so it's not that Sumerian culture influenced Hebrew culture, it's that both come from the same original culture, noetic culture, and that they're, they're slowly diverging. And so they have similarities, but it's not that the Hebrews were influenced by Sumerians, it's quite the opposite. They were both influenced by a different culture, the same father. That's my take on it. Yeah, I would, I would say, just to be, maybe I would agree that they, the stories of those kings has a different purpose than the Bible. I would say clearly because the kings, they try to justify their own authority by going back in time. Whereas who's the author, the real author behind the Bible? God, who's moving forward his story. So clearly it's going to narrate in a different in a different sense. So like the life, tracing your lineage back to those people doesn't really matter as much as it would have to the Sumerians who are trying to justify their kingship by saying, oh, look at all the people we come from. Well, and equally, we'd say it has no relevance to the age of people, right? So the ordering is one thing, but we're not talking about ordering. We're talking about the actual ages. And not to forget, and that. inspiring philosophy and all these people that he's quoting from have a distinct uh want a distinct desire to make the ages non-literal they came into the text wanting these ages not to be true they didn't come in neutrally they came in wanting them not to be true because modern day scientists don't believe that people a live that long or b that the earth is the age that christians are that the bible says it is and therefore they come in with a mindset of wanting to interpret them in a non-literal way so it's not surprising that they end up interpreting them in a non-literal way you can kind of if you approach a text with a certain lens, you can sometimes do whatever you want to the text, depending on how it's written. One feature that is often missed in Genesis is the authors seem to be trying to get equal sets between important figures, like Matthew does with his three sets of 14 generations. Genesis specifically has 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and then 10 generations from Noah's son to Abraham, whereas the Sumerian kinglists only have eight generations before the flood. Thus, it is quite likely the two perfect sets of 10 in Genesis are not a coincidence, and much like what Matthew did with his three sets of 14 generations from Abraham to Jesus. The authors of Genesis have probably left out generations within the timeline to get two perfect sets of 10. Your evidence for that is that they're both 10? That seems pretty weak evidence to me. Your evidence is that the Sumerians leave out two people? That seems really weak evidence to me, considering we know that they lie about the ages. So, like, I don't think they're reliable sources um, for all the reasons I've already said. And so that there's two equal sets of 10 generations. I suppose that's neat. I would point to God's story that he that he has 10 generations until Noah and then 10 generations until Abram. That's God dictating history. Um, but it's it's certainly, I don't think, indicative of doctrine. Yeah, I was I was laughing. All of this proves is Calvinism. This is all that is. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, that's all it proves. Similar techniques were done by other Jewish authors. Demetrius fabricated ages in order to fit a predetermined value. Eupolemus utilized patterns of 480 years to coincide with the Maccabean liberation of Jerusalem. Jubilees condensed, ignored, and changed biblical chronologies to make Israel's history into a series of jubilees of years. Wow. So the book of Jubilees, Jubilees is not biblical, it's fan fiction, um, so not surprising that it, that it twists history for its own needs. Same with the Maccabean Revolt, um, and, and Eupolemus, don't know the guy, um, but that he would try to make some significance amongst the Maccabean liberation of Jerusalem. 
okay? And then Demetrius, no idea who that is, <laughs> fabricated ages in order to fit a predetermined value. Okay, I mean, people manipulate numbers all the time. I know a 23-minute video that does the exact same thing. <laughs> kind of hurting your point, actually, that people use numbers for their own means. I mean, you're, you're using numbers for your own means. This seems to be a reoccurring cultural theme. This technique could have been used in order to get Enoch specifically at the seventh generation. A similar thing occurs in David's genealogy in Ruth 4. Ten generations are mentioned, from Perez to David, but many are probably left out to ensure Boaz is the seventh name mentioned. Because? Because Boab is like the bomb because he's in Ruth? Like, why Boaz? Why not Jesse? Why not David, you insane freako? Like, Jesse, in fact, in fact, Samuel's prophecy about the root of Jesse is about Jesse, is it not? It's about David. He's the root of Jesse, but like, Jesse is the, the, the object of the, the prophecy there. So, why, why is Jesse number nine? Why is he not number seven? Why, do we, why don't we take out Aminadab, who nobody's ever heard of, and Ram? Like, we could have taken out those guys and made Jesse number seven. Um, Boaz, pretty insignificant to be number seven. And same with Enoch, honestly. Like, I understand the Jewish fan fiction around him is, is more in-depth than what the Bible has to say. But, like, all the Bible says is that he was taken up early and he walked with God. Um, there's plenty of other important people there, more important than Enoch as far as, like, their timeline. Um, Sham, of course, is important. Seth is important. Um, and uh, Lamech, father of Noah, you think would be important. Methuselah is important. And yet they're not significant numbers in the genealogy list. So, again, your evidence for the doctoring of these generations is um, stupid. Thus giving significance to Boaz. Something's but who the heck, like who cares about Boaz? I understand, <laughs> he's a character in Ruth, but like he doesn't do anything except for Mary Ruth. Like, yeah, it's a great, great Bible story, has a lot of symbolism in it, but like Boaz as a man in the genealogy is not particularly important, so why would it be number seven? Same with Enoch. Similar may have happened in Genesis 5 with Enoch, but more importantly, this would mean the aim was never to pass on exact chronology from creation to the present, as some young earth creationists believe. But their aim was probably more to connect Israel back to Adam for theological and covenantal reasons. Adam was the first priest of God and would have resided over the first covenant God made with mankind. Yet the covenant was broken and they were exiled. But God said the seed of the woman would one day defeat the seed of the serpent. The biological lines were traced down in hopes of finding the seed to replace Adam. The descending generations were meant to show the progress of mankind as they move further away from God and the need for a new Adam to take his place. Lemek suspected his son would be that man, but problems resulted after the flood, which demonstrate that could not be the case. And so the line must continue down until the new Adam comes. Well, I don't disagree with that. The line must continue until the new Adam comes. He already did come, and so we have eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I think we'll just end this. Sebastian was saying two things. One, you shouldn't do exegesis this way. You heard our rant, heard my rant. Um, two, when you take a philosophical approach primarily and then make that secondary to the Bible, you will end up like this. Inspiring philosophy, it's in the name, it's in a subtext here, it takes philosophy and science and things that are extra biblical before the Bible and applies them to the Bible, whereas we should be taking the Bible and applying it to the world. Now, we don't want to misread the Bible. We don't want to be like the medieval Catholic Church thinking that because the Bible says that the earth is put on pillars, that it's literally on pillars or that it's flat or whatever else. Um, but one, some of those things are myths. And then two, uh, we aren't faced with the overwhelming evidence that the earth is old. Sorry to say. I mean, I understand that he's laughing at Ken Ham and whatever else, and not all Ken Ham's presentations are the best. I'm not some Ken, Ken Hamite. 
Um, but when something is reasonable, like somebody living to 900 years old, knowing genetics that that could absolutely happen, um, why are you fleeing from the Bible like that? And before we even knew genetics, surely they were faithful Christians believing that Adam lived to 900 plus years old and didn't need the genetics to prove it. So just stand in the face of atheists. They hate God anyway, so you don't really need to prove yourself to them. And clearly you have to do all sorts of contortions to try to read Genesis as a spiritual, symbolic age list. And so um, don't let philosophy cloud your judgment. Don't let things that are extra biblical cloud the Bible and make the source of truth your source of truth instead of Bill Nye or whoever else. And please take that to heart because if you, for whatever reason, being selective and whatnot, do this for Genesis, if you do this for the New Testament, you will no longer be a Christian because when do you even stop when you say, oh, this is allegory, this is not allegory. Right. And that is why we have found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for enduring. I have been Michael Man behind the machine into my virtual horizon. Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Oh, I had a blast listening to you, Michael. <laughs> I warned Sebastian. We almost did like a two-minute uh, video by a Muslim apologist, and it was just going to be so short. I said, this one's going to be really long, and I'm going to rant, so we're going to do it. I appreciate you listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to foundcause.podbean.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. If you want to see our beautiful faces and the beautiful slideshow by Inspiring Philosophy, you'll have to go to facebook.com forward slash foundcause or find us on YouTube at The Found Cause here. We're also on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you might find your podcast. So until next time, we talk about something completely different and is not a ranty reaction video. Thanks for watching. Bye.